All right, open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 65, Isaiah chapter 65, and if you want to put a marker in uh, 2 Samuel chapter 9, we're going to go there uh, in a little while, so 2 Samuel chapter 9. But here in Isaiah chapter 65, it speaks of God's rebellious people, a rebellious people. In chapter 64, last week, we saw the passionate prayer of Isaiah and the people pleading in prayer with God to break through the heavens and come down to earth. Here in chapter 65 through 66, which is the end of Isaiah, is God's answer to that prayer. And God makes it very clear that their sins, the people's sins and their unfaithfulness is the reason for God's judgment upon them. And that's God's reason for his judgment on any people, their sins, their ungodliness. But their sins, thank God, haven't kept God from keeping his promises and his purposes concerning his coming kingdom. God has uh, has preserved a remnant. And through this remnant, he's going to fulfill all of his promises or or prophecies, same thing. Uh, He gives a vision again of the kingdom and a preview of Israel's place in eternity in the new heavens and the new earth. And this will take us to the end of the book of Isaiah that ends in a fiery finish. Israel thought they were the only people of God. But the time would come when other nations would seek him. And Paul mentions Israel's statement in Romans chapter 10, verse 20, here in verse 1, and points out that these other nations were the Gentiles. God's people today are those who accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. It doesn't matter what race they are, who they are, where they're from, what they've done. The gospel is for every living being, every single person. So don't ignore or reject anybody that you share the gospel with. Never take it for granted. Well, you know, they're a Jewish person. They don't believe in Christ as Messiah. Don't take that for granted. Share the gospel with anyone, whatever you have that chance to. There are a lot of people who are honestly searching for God. And you know what? They don't even think so. How many of you thought that you were searching for God you know, before you come, became a Christian. So let's begin with verse 1, chapter 65. And Isaiah says of God, I was sought by those, notice, I was sought by those who did not ask for me. I was found by those who did not seek me. I said, and this is God speaking, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. So Isaiah here is speaking here about the Gentiles where he says, I was sought by those who did not ask for me. The ones that the gospel has now come to. And again, Gentile being anybody that's not a Jew. When Paul came to Philippi, he had the vision of the man in Macedonia. But when he got there, he didn't find a man looking for him. That is, he didn't find a man that wanted to hear the gospel. What he does, he finds a woman by the name of Lydia who was holding a prayer meeting down by the river. And even though she may not have recognized her need for Christ, as many people don't, Paul brought the gospel to her. And Paul quotes this verse in Romans 10, 20, 
<clears throat> but Isaiah is very bold, and he says here in verse 1, I was found by those who did not seek me. I was made manifest to those who did not ask for me. That's the way it happened to us, most likely to most of us. Our, our ancestors were heathens. They weren't standing somewhere with their hands out saying, hey, oh, please, send us somebody with the gospel. They didn't want them. They didn't want anybody coming with the gospel. You know, they, they even killed some of those, like missionaries, who did come. And today the heathen are not begging for the gospel. Nobody's begging for the gospel. But God wants to change our hopeless thinking about a faraway, unconcerned God to change that to a confidence in an eager God who does get involved in the lives of people who are totally unaware that God himself comes down to find them. Remember, God is always the initiator. The Bible says that we, we love God because he first loved us. God has responded to people who didn't even call on him. I never asked to be saved. I didn't care about being saved. I didn't care about Christ in the sense of being a Christian and, and him coming into my life. And you know what? He just came to me. Romans 5, 8, Paul says, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we could care less about being a Christian, when we could care less about God, it says that Jesus still died for us and saved us. And that's how chapter 65 starts and ends. With a vision of the enthusiastic God, the God who can be found, the God who says to us, notice here, twice, here I am. Here I am. Here I am. In the New Living Translation, this verse sounds like this. It's read like this. I was ready to respond, but no one asked me for help. I was ready to be found, but no one was looking for me. I said, here I am. Here I am to a nation that did not call on my name. You know, it, it, it's kind of, you know, get the picture of like, you know, God jumping up and down and say, hey, Waving his arms, here I am, here I am, you who, here I am, over here. You know, he's trying to get our attention. Our attention, the attention of self-centered people who run and live their lives without any of God's involvement, totally brushing God off, totally ignoring him. But God wants to be noticed. Again, it's almost like he's humiliating himself here to get our attention. And you know what? He did humiliate himself by dying on the cross like a common criminal. He, he, he did humiliate himself by, by putting on flesh and bone and coming down to this earth and born in, a, in poverty, you know, as a human being. God became a man. I mean, how much lower could God go? God is so persistent in the way that he comes to a lot of the people who find him who weren't looking for him, he said, a nation that was not called by my name. God doesn't wait for us to get interested in him. Again, God is the initiator. He initiates. God makes the first move. And this is how God does things. He doesn't look for somebody with special uh, spiritual knowledge or, or background or gifts or talents. He just says, hey, here I am. And anyone is welcome to come to him. Now go to 2 Samuel chapter 9, and we'll see a great example of that here. 2 Samuel chapter 9, <clears throat> verses 1 through 7. 
It says, now David said, and David here is a type of Christ and his grace. Now, King David said, is there still anyone? Notice the word anyone. Is there still anyone who is left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Just as Jesus Christ showed us kindness for the Father's sake. Verse 2, and there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba. So when they had called him to David, the king said to him, Are you Ziba? He said, At your service. Then the king said, Is there not still someone? Notice he first said anyone. Now is there someone? So it's whosoever. Whosoever will. He said, Is there still not someone of the house of Saul to whom I may show the kindness of God? And Ziba said to the king, There is still a son of Jonathan who is lame in his feet. Now, King David finds this one person that he can show this kindness to. And the servant says, but he's lame in his feet. In other words, this, this particular individual had a defect. He had a flaw. You know, and earlier in the chapter, it says that he was dropped. And many people have been dropped in their life. And they have become lame or have a flaw or defect. We all have flaws or defects. But notice, it didn't stop King David from saying, well, you know, is there anybody else who's in a little better shape or, you know, doesn't have any flaws or defects that I can show my kindness to? David said, anyone, someone. And that's what Jesus did with us. Anyone that is willing, anybody that is ready or wanting, I will come in, and I will show my kindness in them. It doesn't matter the defects in their life. Verse 4 says, So the king said to him, Where is he? Where is he? And Ziba said to the king, Indeed, he's in the house of Machir, the son of Amiel, and Lodabar. The word Lodabar means no pasture. Mephibosheth, this man that David is wanting to show kindness to, the word means no pasture. It means it was a barren land. This man, Mephibosheth, was living in a barren land. It's a picture of the barren life that we live in, this or this wa- the wasteland that we live our life in. And so he finds this, this man, Mephibosheth, in Lodabar in a, in a barren place. Verse 5, it says, Then King David sent and brought him out of the house of Mekur to the son, uh, the son of Amiel from Lodabar. Notice, he brought him out of that place. God does that when Christ comes into our life. He brings us out of the barrenness of life. Verse 6, it says, Now when Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, the son of Saul, had come to David, he fell on his face and prostrated himself. And then David said, Mephibosheth? And he answered, Here is your servant. And so David said to him, Do not fear, for I will surely show you kindness for Jonathan, your father's sake, and I will restore to you. Notice how he restores us. You know, God restores us when we come to Christ. The things that, you know, that, that this life and, and, and the way we live have ripped us off, God will give us a clean start. And it says, he will restore to you all the land of Saul, your grandfather, and, us, and you shall eat bread at my table continually. I love that. He takes Mephibosheth, and he takes him out of that barren land that he was living in, that barren life that many times we, that we live in. And he restores him. He gives him everything that belonged to his father. As Jesus said, hey, all that the father has is mine, and it's yours. And then he says, you know what? You are going to eat at my table. Continually. 
for all eternity. Jesus, I will take you. I will take your life. I will restore to you that which Satan has robbed you of. And you know what? You are going to sit at my table forever. That's beautiful. That's what God has for us. This, this chapter, second, this, this second Samuel, verses 9 through 1 through 7, is probably the best Old Testament picture of New Testament grace. The way that David treated Mephibosheth is the way God pours out his grace on his people. In looking at David's kindness to Mephibosheth, we can get a better understanding and appreciation of God's compassionate treatment of us. The New Testament says that when the gospel is being preached, the voice of Jesus himself comes through the gospel. As Paul said in Romans 10, 14, how then shall they call on him, that is Christ, in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him, that is Christ, of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? We are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were pleading through us, Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God is crying out to your family, to your friends, to your co-workers, to your neighbors, to your city, through you and I, and maybe he's crying out to you tonight if you don't know him. He's saying, here I am. Here I am. I want to meet you. And I want to meet you so badly. And you, don't have to be, and you don't have to be looking for me. This is how we, God's people, reach people who wouldn't be caught dead in a church. Through sharing Christ with them. And, 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 and hopefully our lives match what we say. Because we might be the closest thing that the unbeliever ever comes to when it comes to Christ what we share, and the way that we live. Notice verse 2. Isaiah says of God, I have stretched out my hands all day long. Notice, to what kind of people? A rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good according to their own thoughts. Now the Greek version reads like this. I was found by people who weren't looking for me. I showed myself to those who were not asking for me. And all day long, I opened my arms to them, but they were disobedient and rebellious. Now here he's talking to the Jew, to the nation of Israel. God first gave the gospel to the Jew. And again in Romans 10, 21, Paul says, But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. God rejected Israel only after they had rejected him. In Acts chapter 13, verse 46, we read this. Then Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and declared, It was necessary that we first preach the word of God to you Jews, but since you have rejected it and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we will offer it to the Gentiles. The Jews didn't want the gospel. And God says, okay, since you don't want it and you rejected it and you've deemed yourself unworthy of eternal life, See, by rejecting the gospel, you judge yourself to hell. God doesn't send anybody. God made a way that we don't have to go to hell. But by rejecting his offering, we automatically judge ourselves to hell. And that's the way, again, the gospel all came about to the Gentiles. In other words, 
He said, if Jerusalem refuses the gospel, Ephesus will receive it. If one place doesn't want to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and God's grace, hey, we'll take it somewhere else in the world. Thank God for that. It says here, God is spreading out his hands and he's pleading. He's even begging. And he's so patient. He gives us plenty of chances. But with some people, it's a waste of time. Why? The problem is man's sin. Look, notice what he says there in verse 2. They're, they walk according to their own thoughts. In other words, they follow their own evil ways. They follow their own crooked plans. And that's what Isaiah means here by thoughts. They walk according to their own thoughts. That is, they walk according to the way... It's, it's the way we put our thoughts together to deal with God. And to keep him away from us. Because if we see him clearly in his grace and in his humility, you know, if we would do that, that's contrary to what you would normally think about God. We don't see him uh, in his grace and in his humility. But also there was something strange here. Jews were not accepting Jesus as their Messiah. But here's the strange thing. Many Gentiles were running to him. Many were running to him. Why? Why wasn't it the other way around? Because Israel had the rich history with God. Israel had the relationship with God. They had been taught the messianic promises for hundreds of years, centuries. So accepting Jesus should have been easy. But most of them turned away. While Gentiles, on the other hand, who had no covenant with God, had no preparation of God, their problem was... Uh, they, you know, they, they, they had no covenant with him. They had no scripture knowledge of him. They turned to him. Why was that? The answer is here in verses 1 and 2. Again, which Paul quotes from Romans 10, 20 and 21. Israel's problem wasn't a lack of information or preparation. Their problem was rebellion. And that's usually the problem with a lot of people that hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not a lack of information. It's a problem of rebellion. It says here that God says, I have stretched out my hands all day long to a rebellious people. The word rebellious here means stubborn, unbending, never satisfied. It's the opposite of the contrite and humble spirit that Isaiah mentions in Isaiah 57, 15. Isaiah's spiritual eyes here, his, his prophetic eyes, Isaiah sees God explaining himself. He sees God being reasonable, opening, up, opening his arms to the people, patiently pleading. But for some people, that's not enough. In Isaiah chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, God says even, his, hey, let us reason together. God says, come and let us reason together. He says, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. And though they're red like crimson, they shall be white as wool. He says, if you're willing and obedient, you will eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. You see, God says, come on, let's reason together. Think about it. Think about what I'm telling you. And you know what? If you truly are a thinker, you can't help but come to the knowledge of Christ. Paul saw the same thing in his day. God reaching out to his covenanted people again and again and again through the prophets. For example, the prophets. 
But in the greatest way, he reached out through Christ. But you see, he couldn't get through to them. Why? The people that God loved so much just wouldn't listen. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 25, verses 3 through 7. Josiah said, The Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you. God says, Rising early and speaking, but you have not listened. And the Lord has sent to you, notice, the Lord has sent to you all his, his servants, the prophets, rising early and sending them, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear to hear. They said, repent now, every one of his evil way and his evil doings, and dwell in the land of the Lord that he has given you and your fathers forever. Do not go after other gods to serve them and worship them, and do not provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, and I will not harm you. Yet you have not listened to me, says the Lord, that you might provoke me to anger with the works of your hands to your own hurt. He said, I sent you, you know, time after time, prophets and, 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 and preachers to come and to speak of me. But you, you rejected me. You wouldn't listen. And you've provoked me. So here's the weird thing about it. The people with the most revelation, the best chance of coming to know Christ, they rejected Jesus. While the people on the outside, with all of the disadvantages, loved Jesus. And John 1, verse 11 tells us, He, Christ, came to his own, and his own did not receive him. Jesus came to his own people, and they rejected him. People need to know more than the gospel. They need the Holy Spirit to open their spiritual eyes and ears to make them respond to the gospel because by nature, we are inclined to reject it because it goes totally contrary to our nature. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, 14-16, Paul said this from the New Living Translation, But their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament. Because the veil is taken away in Christ. Until Christ comes into one's life, that veil is over their eyes. They'll never see. That's why it's so important that we pray that the Holy Spirit will open their spiritual eyes and their heart to to receive their ears to hear. Paul went on to say, but even to this day, writing at the time of, of what he's written here, you know, even to this day, he said, when Moses is read... Even today, he says, the, veils, the veil lies on their heart. He said, nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, that veil is taken away. That blindness is removed. And they see Christ. Verses 3 through 5 here. Notice what it says. A people who provoke me to anger continually to my face, who sacrifice in gardens and burn incense on altars of brick, who sit among the graves and spend the night in the tombs, who eat swine's flesh and the broth of abominable things in their vessels, who say, keep to yourself, do not come near me, for I am holier than you. These are smoke in my nostrils, a fire that burns all the day, God says. Let me read that, those verses from the New Living Translation. God says, they shamelessly keep on making me angry. They offer pagan sacrifices at sacred gardens and burn incense on pagan altars. At night, they go to caves and tombs to consult the spirits of the dead. They eat pork and drink broth made from meat offered in pagan sacrifices. And then they say to others, keep away from us. We are too holy for you to touch. 
God says, I can't stand people like that. My anger against them is like a fire that never goes out. The people's weirdness goes even deeper. When Isaiah's people rejected God, they were still very religious. But they were following their own style of religion, their own brand, their own making. They were following their own thoughts about God. They were following their own ideas and their own feelings, which were pagan. It wasn't worship that God approved of. The people couldn't find God this way through their own style of of religion. But they didn't want to find God. They were fascinated, like a lot of people are, by the mysterious rituals of of, of cults and and pagan cultures that are around them. Every man-made religion, whether it's pagan, even traditional, ends up not only dishonoring God, but also misleading and mistreating people. Its message to people is this, like he says here in verse 5, keep to yourself, don't come near me for I am holier than you. Man-made religion makes a person self-righteous. Look what I've done. See, this is, my, this is what I do. It's my style of religion, so it's what I've done. They feel holy. It feels religious. It feels good. But God says, it irritates me continually because it's what you do that you think is right. It's this self-exalting attitude that stinks to God. He says, it's like smoke in my nostrils. And, and you know, when you've been inundated with smoke, it burns, it's uncomfortable, and, and it's, 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 you know, it's, it's terrible. But the same God that we've offended is still ready to help us when we're ready to be helped. And and, and our God welcomes any sinner who will reach out and grab his outstretched hand in Christ. And God is still saying today, here I am. Here I am. And it's what he's saying to you right now. And this is why God held back the blessings from Israel. They were continually going back into idolatry and rebelling against God. Now, the things that, that God mentions here for his, for his judgment against the, the Israel, this is just a short list of the reason for Israel's rejection. But they were breaking the commandments of God that he gave them. Look at verses 6 and 7 now. Behold, it is written before me, I will not keep silence, but will repay, even repay in their bo- into their bosom. Your iniquities and the iniquities of your fathers together, says the Lord, who have burned incense on the mountains and blasphemed me on the hills. Therefore, I will measure their former work into their bosom. Israel walked in pride. They outwardly practiced a God-given religion, but their hearts were far from God. They practiced sin, just like they practiced the rituals of religion, which those religions blaspheme God. Verse 8. Thus says the Lord, and as the new wine is found in the cluster, and one says, do not destroy it, for a blessing is in it, so will I do for my servant's sake, that I may not destroy them all. In spite of the people's sins, God would not totally wipe them out. Why? Because of the believing remnant. The remnant is compared to a cluster of wonderful grapes that's been passed over in the vineyard. Verse 9. 
I will bring forth descendants from Jacob and from Judah and heir of my mountains, and elect, uh, my elect shall inherit it, and my servants shall dwell there. The words descendants from Jacob could be referring to the Lord Jesus, but it mostly refers to the remnant out of Israel that's to be saved. And for the sake of that remnant, that small remnant of God, God's going to keep his promises because of them. Verse 10. Sharon shall be a fold of flocks, and the valley of Achor a place for herds to lie down, for my people who have sought me. The valley of Achor probably became known for, uh, for, for meaning that which caused trouble. The valley of Achor became known as for that which caused trouble. And when Isaiah refers to that, which had been a source of calamity, it would become a source of blessing. He says, that which has caused trouble is going to become a source of blessing to you. You see, there was to be a place of safety for that little flock, that little remnant of God. Verses 11 and 12. He says, But you are those who forsake the Lord, <clears throat> who forget my holy mountain, who prepare a table for Gad, which was a, a, a pagan god, and who furnish a drink offering for many, or many, another pagan god. He says, Therefore, I will number you for the sword, and you shall all bow down to the slaughter, because when I called, you did not answer. When I spoke, you did not hear. But you did evil before my eyes and chose that in which I do not delight. But for the rest of the nation, other, other than that small remnant, for the rest of the nation who went headfirst into sin without paying any attention to God's word, all that's left for them is nothing but punishment. You know, it, it's so crazy how intelligent people who believe in God, don't realize that the judgment must come in the end. And that, they have to, and that they're going to give an account for everything that they did. And if they continue in their sin, they're going to be judged just as surely as God judged most of the nation of Israel. Verses 13 through 16. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be ashamed. Behold, my servants shall sing for joy of heart, but you shall cry for sorrow of heart and wail for grief of spirit. You shall leave your name as a curse to my chosen, for the Lord God will slay you and call his servants by another name. So that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. And he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten and because they are hidden from my eyes. Here God, in verses 13 through 16, is holding out his strong and his helpful hand to us. God loves genuineness. And he hates deceitfulness. And no matter how mixed his people are now, no matter what a mixed multitude it is now, God is going to make his own judgments one day clear, unmistakable, final, and powerful. And Isaiah's argument here is that we are now. What we are now will count forever. Each one of us stands in, the fork, stands in a fork in the road. There's only two ways to go. You choose. 
God says, here's the road to heaven and here's the road to hell. And you stand in that fork and he says, you choose. You choose heaven or hell. What's heaven like? Well, in verse 13, it's like eating and drinking and rejoicing and singing for gladness of heart forever. What's hell like? Verses 14 and 15 say, it's like hunger and thirst and shame. It's crying out in pain and weeping in brokenness of spirit, in misery and hopelessness forever. A lot of people think that, that hell is a joke, that it's a myth, a mythological place. Some don't even believe in a literal hell. You know, they think, would God really send nice people to hell just because they don't believe in Jesus? Yeah. Well, doesn't sincerity count? You know, you can drink poison sincerely thinking it's, it's water, but you're going to die. People think, does it really matter what religion I belong to as long as I'm sincere? You see, the problem with this kind of thinking is that it, it, it doesn't understand the gospel at all. It's the, it's the Bible, it's the gospel that brings up hell. Jesus brought it. Jesus mentioned it. Jesus in, in Matthew 25, 41 says that, that hell was not made for man. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. So hell is a gospel problem. What does the gospel say? It says that God saves bad people. Not nice people. Not sincere people. The gospel saves sinners. And to say that, that, that there can't be a hell because God accepts anyone who is nice and kind and tolerant is to say that, that we're saved by our own good works. If we could be saved by our own good works, by doing good things, good deeds, Jesus would have not had to come and die on a cross for our sins. It's a nice thought. It sounds nice that we're saved by our own good works. But if that would be the case, where does that leave all the not nice people? All the unkind and intolerant people in them. Where does it leave, it, leave them? Is there any hope for all the bad people? The gospel says, yeah, there is. The gospel says that bad people can be saved because Jesus Christ obeyed God and died for bad people. Listen to what it says in Mark chapter 2, verses 16 and 18. <clears throat> It says, and when the scribes and the Pharisees, those who were the religious leaders of the day, the cream of the crop in religion, the big wigs of religion, when the scribes and Pharisees saw Jesus eating with the tax collectors and sinners, which were the bad people, you know, the, the, the scribes and the Pharisees, oh, they were so religious and righteous. They wouldn't, they wouldn't talk to the, to, the, to, the scri to the tax collectors and the sinners. They wouldn't have anything to do with them. And so here the scribes and the Pharisees, they see Jesus eating with the tax collectors and sinners. And the scribes and the Pharisees say to his disciples, how is it that Jesus, your, 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 your master, eats and drinks with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard the mass, listen to what he said to them. He says, Jesus said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Jesus said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners bad people to repentance doctors don't make house calls for people that are healthy 
You don't go to the hospital because you're healthy. You go because you're sick. Jesus saves sick people, bad people. Another thing the gospel says is that Jesus Christ went to hell for us by way of the cross. That's what happened at the cross. Jesus paid every person's sins upon that cross. And we need to know and understand that every sinner goes to hell apart from Jesus Christ. And that all sin is punished by God. Every single sin, no exceptions. No one gets away with anything. Don't be offended by the strong doctrine of hell. It's in the Bible. Jesus spoke about it. Don't be, forced, uh, be, be fooled by the lies and the presumptions, that is, man's opinions about hell. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ, crucified, offers bad people hope. And it shows how costly God's love is by giving his son. The love, of God, the love of God for us isn't that he decided not to punish the guilt of our sins, but Jesus gave himself as our substitute in his passion for us, in his love for us, and in his death. Jesus endured our hell on the cross. We should, be, should have been on that cross. We should have suffered that punishment and torment for our sins. If you want to believe in a loving God, what greater love is there than the love of our dying Savior on the cross? Man, if you don't think God loves you, look at the cross. If you come to God as the God of truth, as verse 16 says, if you come to God as the God of truth, not the God of nice people, then God wants to encourage you that he's preparing a place for you that's where he will be, you will be with him also. Now look where he's going to take his servants in verses 17 through 18. For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. There's a new day coming, a new age. A, a true new age, not the false new order that the world talks about, a new age that it's talking about. Satan is offering his counterfeit today. The new world order, the new order, the new age, whatever you want to call it, it's his counterfeit. It's satanic. And this whole new age movement is satanic. It's a lie. But God's going to bring a true new age, and he's going to, as he said here, create the new heavens and the new earth. The former won't be remembered nor even brought into mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I create, God says. Look at verse 19. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her nor the voice of crying. God's going to wipe away all tears. God himself is going to dwell with his people. It's going to be a wonderful new age. Now, this refers to the kingdom age that will be set up when Jesus returns to the earth, the millennial kingdom. The earth is going to go through a real transformation process. God's going to restore the earth. Look at verse 20. No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old, but the sinner being 100 years old shall be accursed. The New Living Translation says it like this. No longer will babies die when only a few days old. No longer will adults die before they have lived a, a full life. 
No longer will people be considered old at 100. Only the cursed will die that young. The longevity of life that existed before the patriarchs will be one of the, one of the neat things, one of the fe- uh, features of the new kingdom. People are going to live a long time. Verse 21. They shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Prosperity is another feature of the, of the kingdom. It will be a real time of blessing, real blessing. Verse 22. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat. For as the days of a tree, so shall be the days of my people. And my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. There will be permanence and stability in that time. Verse 23. They shall not labor in vain, nor bring forth children for trouble. For they shall be the descendants of the blessed of the Lord and their offspring with them. This promise specifically says that they will no longer have children doomed to misfortune. They would have children for many generations to come. And the Mosaic Law promised a long life and many children to the godly. Verses 24 and 25. It shall come to pass that before they call, I will answer. And while they are speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall feed together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain, says the Lord. God's silence is now ended. He's spoken. The long wait between prayer and the answer would be over. And in this case, the answer comes before the prayer. You see, God knows our need even before we ask. Notice it says here, it says, before they call, I will answer. He says, the wolf and the lamb, they're going to eat together. And the lion eating straw means their nature has changed. It suggests there's going to be harmony in nature, no strife. And it says, the serpents here have now become harmless. They're going to eat dust. God says, says here, no one will be hurt or destroyed on my holy mountain. I and the Lord have spoken. So in closing, we have a great hope. But the hope of personal intimacy with God forever and a renewed world of peace and righteousness, hey, we have both. It's not just one or the other. We have the hope of a personal intimacy with God forever and a renewed world of peace and righteousness. God has a plan for you. He has a plan for this world. And the Lord Jesus Christ died for this plan and it's going to come to pass. But you know what? You can enjoy God in Christ right now. And you don't need to do anything. He will recreate you. The gospel says if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation or she is a new creation. All things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. When you come to Christ, he doesn't patch up the old you. He makes you brand new. And you'll enjoy God forever in a never-ending newness. Every day, And we know this. Every day, you and I are tempted. Satan wants to tempt us to to throw this hope away, to give up, to, to throw in the towel. And sometimes you feel like it. But what what would you give up this wonderful hope that we have for anyway? This corrupted evil world? Is it worth it? No. To throw away that which God has given us in Christ. But as it is written, 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, I has not seen, 
nor ear heard, nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love him. That's what we're living for. That's what we're waiting for. If you're not a Christian, or if you're a believer, God is saying to every one of us, here I am. Here I am. But are you interested? If you're a bad person, in God's, you know, God's, according to God's word, we're sinners. We all are. We think we're good. God is saying, look, I'm still here. And I'll save you. And I'll make you brand new. I'll turn your life around if you turn to Jesus Christ. And if you look honestly, you'll come to the conclusion. God says, if you look honestly at me, you'll come to the conclusion that I can be trusted. And that I will prepare a place for you in the new heavens and the new earth. Father, we thank you so much for this wonderful chapter. For this wonderful hope that we have, Lord. A wonderful future outlook, God. Lord, help us to stand strong. Help us to not give up. Help us not to sit down, throw in the towel, Father. Turn away, Father. May we just, may we just, just stay anchored deep in Christ, Lord. Father, in your presence is a tremendous help, a, tr a tremendous strength, God, a wonderful hope. And if you're here tonight and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, maybe you be may might be watching at home, we encourage you, we pray that you would see God saying, look, here I am. Here I am. I'm here for you. And if you sense the Spirit of God moving in your heart, recognizing, I want to go to heaven. I want a new life. I want to be a new creation in Christ. God says, I'll do that for you. I want to pray this, sin, this, this, this uh, sinner's prayer out loud. And if you want to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, whoever you are, wherever you are, you repeat this prayer to the Lord with all of your heart. Dear Jesus, please forgive me, Lord, for all of my sins. I confess to you, I am a sinner. I want to receive you as my Lord and my Savior. Fill me with your Holy Spirit and help me now to follow you all the days of my life. And thank you, Lord, for saving me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The Bible says if you, if you prayed that, that prayer with all of your heart, that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. And God forbid if you should go to meet him today or whenever, you know, down the road. You know, it, it says that, you know, again, you live for him. And, and, and you just obey you know just live for him be a witness and a testimony for him that we will be with him for all eternity in heaven if you need a bible please see me pastor tony uh one of the ushers and we'll be more than glad to give you one if you live in the area come to the church here bible teaching church where you can learn the gospel of jesus christ not man's opinions or politics or anything else but the gospel of jesus christ that's what we need again if you don't live close by, find you a, a good Bible teaching church, all right? Uh,